All right, so we are in Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. And please stand as we read the word of the Lord together. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to gather with you this morning. I just wanted to say a quick uh, thanks to Dan. Dan Rebez was leading us in worship this morning along with our awesome band. And so uh, Dan is along. Yeah, you can give him a hand. Uh, I've known Dan for quite a while, but he's uh, really good family friends with the Hunts, and so Dan, it's great to have you with us this morning, uh, leading us as we worshiped our God and King. Uh, but it is good to be with you, but as we jump into God's Word this morning, let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, this morning we pray on this kind of cold, damp day that you would warm our hearts, that you would allow our minds to be attentive this morning, that you would enliven us, that you'd wake us up to your word, and that by your spirit you would work in and through this time, that you would help us to receive your word, what you'd have to say to us this morning, and that by that, by the power of your spirit, that you would bring about change in our life, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Holy Spirit, would you work in us today? Would you help us to be attentive to you today. We praise you for the gift of your word. We pray that we'd be good receivers of it now. Help me to be a good steward of it. And Lord, we pray that you'd be made much of today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, my family and I, the house that we live in is, uh, is kind of a little bit near a wooded area. And when we moved into it a few years ago, uh, upon the, the house inspection being done, one of the things they discovered is that sometime in the past, there had been a little bit of termite damage on the outside of the house. And so every year since then, we've always had a termite inspection done to make sure that we don't have any little friends eating away at our house. Now, termites are kind of an interesting little creatures. There are a ton of different species of termites, and only some of them are wood-eating. But those that are wood-eating can do significant damage to an unprotected wood structure like a house. The reason they can do that, the reason they can get away with it, is because they're small, they're subtle, and they're silent. Termites are the masters of concealment. They can go completely undetected until the wood is severely damaged. They only leave a kind of a thin layer of a wall that protects them from exposure to the environment. In other words, these little pests destroy something from the inside out. Well, this morning we're continuing on in Hebrews 12, as Jody read this morning, a chapter that so far has been very pastoral, very pastoral, very exhortative, calling us as followers of Jesus to fix our eyes on him, to fix our eyes on Christ as we journey through the life that God has called us to here and now. 
all along the way believing that he is better than anything the world would promise to us or throw at us. Well, today as we get into these next few verses, we're going to see two key things. One is that there are specific, regular, mostly internal struggles that can greatly affect, even destroy the life of a follower of Jesus. Can destroy a community of Jesus' followers, the church. Starts from the inside and works its way out. But what we also see in this text is how vital community is on the journey. A theme the author has brought up and will continue to bring up as we wrap up this great and glorious book. As we continue on the journey God has laid before us, my hope is that God will use his word this morning to help us as his people to be sober-minded, to be appropriately introspective, and deeply connected and committed to one another and one another's holiness. Because the author clearly states, without holiness, no one will see God. So with that, let's jump into our text this morning in Hebrews 12, and may God bless the preaching of his word. Our text this morning is immediately connected to the previous 13 verses that we've looked at over the last two weeks. And what we've seen in this, this reality that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, are called to run the race that's set before us. This journey that we're on that has a finish line in mind That God has called us to run that race in light of a world that we find ourselves in where we're affected by sin. Our own rebellion against God and those around us in their rebellion against God. And we also have learned that God disciplines each of us along the way. But he does so because he loves us. And he is committed to making us more like his son, making us more like Jesus. Now, as we've been in the book of Hebrews now for almost a year, one of the things that we see in the book of Hebrews is that there are four major warning texts so far that we've come across. Today, we're beginning the fifth and final warning in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to kind of take it in two parts. We're going to look at a few of those verses today, and then next week, we'll finish up this fifth warning passage in verses 18 through 29. Now, the author has just encouraged us to, in verse 13, 12 and 13, to make straight the paths for our feet. And he says to be healed. And the thing that we're called to be healed from is our greatest infirmity. The thing that all of us suffer from most significantly in our life, and that is the sin that remains within us. So now in verse 14, he makes a strong statement that really encapsulates the call of obedience in the Christian life. Look at verse 14 again. See, uh, sorry, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now this is kind of a header statement and the following verses are going to flow out of verse 14. So what is he saying here? Well, the first thing that we can take note of, and if you write in your Bible, just maybe underline the word strive or put a box around the word strive. That's this first word that jumps out to us here, strive. When he says strive, he means a strong, concerted effort on our part as followers of Jesus. A strong, concerted effort to do what Jesus has actually called us to do. It's like running a race. Literally, we have to put one foot in front of the other. We have to continue to move forward in faith on the journey that God has laid out for you and for me. Now what this tells us is this. That actual obedience to the calls and com- call and commands of Christ matters. 
actual obedience to the call and commands of Christ matters. So what is it that the author calls us to strive for? Two things, peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. So let's take them one at a time. He says, strive for peace with everyone. Now the main group of people that he has in mind here are the group of people that are persecuting this young, struggling church that he's writing to. He's telling them, be at peace with them. There's a growing hostility around you, living for Christ in this world. There's an increasing hostility against you and against Christ. Yet, be at peace. Seek peace with those people. The author's exhortation is, don't respond like they do and are to you, but instead earnestly pursue peace. Now, not everyone is going to want to be at peace with this church, with us as followers of Jesus. But the point is simply this, you must strive to have a peaceable attitude, even if someone else doesn't have one towards you. Never take the initiative to stir up strife. Now, while this is directed most specifically to those that are persecuting this church, the principle of this applies to anyone you might have conflict with. Paul says something similar in in Romans chapter 12, that as long as it's up to us, we should seek to be at peace with anyone, whether that's inside or outside of the church. But see, peace isn't just about personal relationships. Peace, the kind of peace that he's calling us to, is the solidarity of a whole community. And the community in particular that he has in mind is the church, the local church of brothers and sisters in Christ. This community that's been brought together by, in, and through Jesus. And solidarity or unity that is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And now who he calls us to make much of him in the world around us. But remember though, what is he calling us to do? Strive for peace with everyone. This means it isn't always going to be easy. It's going to require work. It's going to require effort on our part. At times it will be difficult. At times it will be trying. But that's not a reason not to do it. It's essential for us to pursue this peace, most importantly with one another, but even to have a peaceable attitude with those around us. It's essential for the health of the church. It's essential for the effectiveness of the mission of the church. How we love one another is a display to the world around us. It's essential to the glory of God as we reflect that to one another and the world around us. This means that we should not be surprised that conflict will arise between brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. And the reason we shouldn't be surprised by that is because all of us know that we still struggle with sin. We still have tendencies towards selfishness. And so we're, we're all works in progress. And you put a bunch of us together in a family with one another, there's going to be times when there will be conflict. But that isn't something to fear. And it certainly isn't something to avoid. But instead, because of the hope that we have in Christ, we can actually walk through it and in it with hopefulness and resolve because our God, we know, as we looked at last week, is at work within us so that he can work through us. And this is so important for us as a church family. We need to remember that Jesus has purchased unity for us. He's purchased it for us. What we're called to do in Ephesians chapter 4 is maintain that unity. 
But when I think about maintaining, I think about like, okay, I kind of maintain my garden, right? Well, I don't really, but if I was going to, if I was going to maintain, it's like, well, I should kind of take note of it and make sure that everything's okay. Now, this is more the idea of fighting for it. I'm going to defend this because I so believe in it, because God's called me to it, because I know it's for my own good and the good of others around me. Man, I want that for our church, that we'd be willing to do these kinds of things, striving with earnestness, putting forth the effort to do this, that concerted effort to maintain peace with one another so that when we go out into the world around us, we can also bring the peace of Christ to those around us. So far as it depends on you, Sojourn Church, with what's in your ability given to you by Christ, with Christ-enabled humility, strive for peace with everyone. That's not all. He says also to strive for holiness. But he doesn't just say that, right? He doesn't just say strive for holiness. Look at the text. He says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Man, that, that raises the bar a bit, doesn't it? So what is he talking about here? Well, we need to remember a few things. The good news of the gospel is clear to us. It is Christ alone that enables you and I to be reconciled to God. It's what he has done dying in our place on the cross for our sin, being raised again from the grave. It's what he has done, not what you do that enables you to know God, not what you do that enables you to be reconciled to God, to be with him. It's all of grace that he gives to you, not your works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 make that clear to us. So the author can't be talking about losing your salvation. That's not possible. If you've been saved by grace, you didn't earn it, which means you can't lose it. So he isn't talking about a loss of salvation. He's talking about evidence of it. The call to holiness is not works salvation. It's a part of our perseverance as we walk with Jesus. The call to holiness is not a condition of our salvation, but a result of it. If it was a condition... It'd be up to us, and we would mess it up over and over again. But it's a result, meaning that it flows out of something given to you, done to you, something for you. In other words, if you truly know God, if you have been reconciled to God by grace, through faith, in Christ, then God is committed to your holiness. God is committed to making you more like Jesus. Man, what great news that is for you and for me. Isn't it, it isn't all up to me. It isn't all up to you to, to bring about that striving for holiness in your own life. We saw that last week in verse 10. God disciplines us for our good, what? That we may share in his holiness. He's, he's setting us apart for his glory and for our good. So God is committed to pursuing our holiness. So because of that truth, because of that reality, we then likewise must pursue our holiness with him, not apart from him. So that means then an evidence of being saved from our sin, of having new life, is that there's a desire within you to no longer pursue sin, but to pursue your Savior. So, if you don't have that desire, if that desire isn't present in your life, perhaps you don't yet truly know Jesus, but just know about him. There is no claiming Christ 
and not becoming more like him. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't going to have a bad day or a bad week or bad months. We all will. We all do. Even these last few weeks for me have been confronted with my own sin and weakness and shortcomings. This isn't about perfection, though. It's about progress. By grace, God is transforming you from one degree of glory to another towards Christ and Christ-likeness. Here's what I want us to remember. Striving for holiness at its highest level is about holding fast to Jesus who is holding fast to you. It's holding fast to Jesus who has already set you apart. That's what holiness means here. He's setting you apart. He's distinguished. He's pulling you out. He's setting you apart, putting his favor on you. Through him, he already declares you a saint, not a sinner. That's who you are now. That's your new identity. It's what it means to be holy. Not that you're doing, not doing certain things, but you're becoming more like Jesus. It's your new identity. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. And so church, this morning, we need to remember this. You strive not to become saved, but because you are saved. You strive not for grace, but from grace. You strive for holiness because of grace. So now walk in it. Run in it. Fix your eyes on Jesus and follow him. Pursue holiness by pursuing Jesus. Looking to his word spending time with him in prayer, worshiping, gathering together as his people in community. And when you and I continue to live the life that God has called us to, we do so with the same grace that saved us, being the same grace that enables us and empowers us to be transformed. And we can ask all along the way, just like we did last week, God, what are you teaching me right now? What are you showing me about my life? What are you revealing about who you are? We can pray the reality of the end of Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, help me to be holy. Saw the end of Psalm 139. God, search out my heart. Show me if there's any grievous way in me. And then what? Lead me in the way everlasting. God, I need you to help me do this. I can't do this on my own. Simply put, Hebrews 12, 14 is about our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. And those two things go hand in hand. As one scholar puts it, within the community of faith, within the church, there is no separation of peace and holiness. If peace binds the community together as the achievement of Christ— Holiness is that quality which identifies the community as the possession of Christ. We're set apart for him. So this is a call to peace and holiness both individually and corporately. Then I want that to be who you are as a follower of Jesus. And I want that to be who we are as followers of Jesus together that make up the church. But the author wants to press in a little further as he regularly does. And where he goes next is he highlights some specific things that flow out of this pastoral call to strive for peace and holiness. Things that are consistent yet subtle struggles that seem to plague followers of Jesus in a broken world. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. See, the reason that he lists these specific things is they are regular struggles, subtly dangerous and deadly struggles that are mostly internal struggles. And they all have an underlying core commonality, unbelief. Unbelief in who God is. Unbelief in his good ways, what he calls us to. Unbelief in his faithfulness. He says the first thing, see to it that we don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Now again, this can sound confusing. But we just said grace cannot be earned. It's given to us by God. So what is he talking about here? Just this past week, I was spending some time with with Alex Diber, and he was over at my house, and I don't know if you know Alex, but he has this awesome coat. It's thick, and then it's got these pockets right here, and the best part about it is it's got this big fur hood. Man, if you've got that coat on, you are not going to be cold on a cold winter day. Now, say someone gave you a coat like that, a coat that would protect you from the elements, but they didn't just give you that coat. They actually put it on you. They made sure you had it on. You're, you're, you're snuggled up, tucked in tight in that coat. You're good to go to keep you warm. But on a cold, blizzard-conditioned day, if you look at that coat and think, worthless, and I don't need that. I can do this cold thing on my own. I know how to regulate my own body temperature. I, I don't need this gift of this coat anymore, and you take it off and you throw it aside. You may be okay for a few minutes out in the cold, but eventually you're going to freeze. See, in the same way, if you fall short of grace, it isn't because it was inaccessible. It's because you didn't take hold of it. You didn't take advantage of what had been given to you. You've forgotten how desperate you are apart from Jesus, how desperate you are for his grace each and every moment of your day, and you just put Jesus on the shelf. See, what the author's talking about here is not a shortage of grace in your life. There is never a way that you can out God's grace. When you sin, when you struggle, God's word says he gives more grace. You can't outstrip the grace of God. Man, that's good news to you and to me this morning because we're going to walk out of here today and we're going to sin again. So that's not what he's talking about here, but it's saying I'm not taking hold of that. I'm not walking with Christ in that way. I've set Jesus on the shelf. I've rejected that grace. I'm trying to do this, even striving for holiness thing on my own. This has been a consistent warning in Hebrews. Don't set Jesus aside. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep holding fast to Jesus. Keep clinging to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, see to it that you don't reject God's grace in your life or with your life and then fail to finish the race. The next thing he calls us to is to see to it that we don't have a root of bitterness. And what is he talking about here? Well, I've always read this and thought he must be just talking about bitterness in the sense of resentment. But there's not exactly what it means. And it certainly entails that, but it's much larger than that. At its core, a root of bitterness has the sense of turning away from God to pursue other gods. Turning away from God to pursue other things besides him. 
And just like a tree can have bad roots that lead to bad fruit or an unhealthy tree, a root of bitterness is exactly that. It's that subtle, under the surface, turning away from God and his ways. And often it begins because something hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. God hasn't come through in your life the way that you hoped he would or you expected him to. Or maybe someone hasn't treated you the way that you believe that you should be treated. And when this root of bitterness springs up, it causes this internal struggle, this internal turmoil within us that eventually causes trouble externally. It's evidence of a broken relationship with God. And when you and I have a broken relationship with God, it often leads to broken relationships with other people. Notice he doesn't say a root of frustration, right? Like sometimes we can just be a, a little bit frustrated with someone. Like you walked in this morning and someone didn't hold the door for you. Oh, I feel frustrated by that. He doesn't say that. He says it's a root of bitterness. This is taintedness. It's settled in and it's eating away at your heart. It makes it difficult to love God. Because you don't believe he's good. You don't believe he's faithful. And then it makes it difficult to love others. And when this starts, it just starts with this subtle unbelief, but it grows. And then accompanying sin leads you and others astray. Because see, a root of bitterness, it it multiplies. It extends influence. It corrupts. It spoils. It's poison. It's creeping vine then will spread and entangle your own life, leading to death. And falling away from the living God. So brothers and sisters, the author says, see to it that you don't have a root of bitterness brewing in your heart. The next thing he calls us to, he says, see to it that we don't have sexual immorality. Why? Because it isn't holy. If we go back to verse 14, we're called to strive for holiness. Well, sexual immorality is not pursuing holiness and it's not a part of God's good design. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity of any kind outside of one man and one woman who are married to each other. Now, I'm not going to talk more about this today because the author actually brings this back up in Hebrews 13 in verse 4. And so in about two weeks, we'll spend more time unpacking this. But brothers and sisters, see to it that you don't have any sexual immorality in your life. And then the last thing that he calls us to is to make sure that to make sure that's not brewing in our life is a life of unholiness. He kind of brings this full circle to verse 14. But he says in particular, unholiness like Esau. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. Unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Now the author's assuming that his audience knows the story of Esau, but let me either refresh you on that story or maybe just tell you the story for the first time. This takes place in Genesis 25 and 27, so you could go back and read it later. But Esau is the brother of Jacob and they're twins. They're born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac's the son of Abraham. And so the promises of God have come to Abraham, then go to Isaac, and then they'll go to the firstborn of Isaac's children. Well, Esau is born first. So 
The way that family line should go is that Esau should get this blessing of this birthright that comes through his father in the line of his family. But as Jacob and Esau grow up, they have different personalities, different likes. Esau is kind of an outdoors, outdoorsy guy. He likes to hunt. He likes to be out in the outdoors. There's some speculation that along with that, that he lived kind of an immoral life, that he sought pleasure in material things, that he wanted women and he wanted the things of this world and he pursued those things. Jacob wasn't that great himself. He wasn't quite the outdoors type, but was a schemer. He liked to stay home and cook. But he did that in a way, and he was kind of conniving with his mom about all kinds of things. They're not great standards of holiness in their lives, just in general. But what happens, what he's referencing in this story, is that one day Esau comes home, and Jacob is kind of already trying to set up a trick on Esau. Esau comes home from hunting. It says he's hungry, and Jacob's making this pot of stew. So Esau demands the stew from him. Give me some of that stew. Well, Jacob, being sneaky, says, okay. Just give me your birthright, and I'll give you the stew. Which seems really silly to throw that out there, right? Esau, I think, almost in a throwaway manner, thinks it's also ridiculous. It's like, whatever, sure, you can have my birthright. Just give me the stew. So he takes it, he eats it, he walks away. Chapter 27 in Genesis. Jacob, now thinking he has this birthright, goes to trick his father, Isaac. And he goes in and he steals this birthright from his father. So his father blesses him not Esau. Esau comes later to receive this blessing from his father, and his father says, I've already given it out. The text says that he weeps bitterly over this. He's in anguish over this. He's been tricked. He's been dismayed, yet there's nothing that can be done. Now, what we see in this is why we have to ask the question, why does he use this now as an example for us? Esau is an example of anyone who puts material or sensual pursuits before spiritual life and blessing. In other words, Esau focused more on self than God and his ways. The blessing was his. He was the firstborn. But he squandered it away for temporary satisfaction. And when Esau realized that he had lost this blessing from his father, he couldn't do anything to get it back even though he sought it with tears. The text says there's no chance for him to repent. doesn't mean there wasn't a chance for him to go and say he was sorry, but he didn't actually repent. He didn't turn away from his sin and turn to a savior. He just wanted the fruit of repentance, the outcome that would come with repentance. All he wanted was just the fruit. He was still focused on himself. You and I are called to strive for peace, to strive for holiness, Esau pursued self, and by that reaped a world of despair and destruction. And so he stands as a warning and an example to us. Because see, what Esau was most guilty of is profaning God and his ways. It's another manifestation of unbelief. And it's something that you and I can all be tempted toward. See, Esau gave it all the way for one fleeting pleasure, a pot of stew. But what we can't miss is that this decision was sown with a long path of internal discontent. He had stopped striving for holiness, stopped striving for satisfaction in his God. 
And so below the surface, within his life, this creeping vine grew from a root of bitterness into a redwood of bitterness. And it destroyed his life. It culminated in a literal pot of stew. And that can happen in our own lives as well. The last step to running away and turning away from God is the last step in a long line of steps. Oftentimes you see maybe a man or a woman enter into a sexually immoral relationship, have an affair, but that didn't just happen. There's been compromises and steps all along the way under the surface that have led them to that place. But it doesn't have to be something so big as that. It could be anything in our life, anything that we are willing to let go of Jesus for, anything that we are willing to take the good life that he has called us to and set it aside in order to gain something. Whether that be success or affirmation or accolades or riches, wealth, status, stuff, a relationship, sexual pleasure, anything that becomes the ultimate thing. All these things that the author has mentioned, they flow out of that call to strive for peace and holiness. And they're rooted in unbelief about who God is and what he's promised to you. And just like Hebrews 3 told us, Sin is deceitful. It lies to you. And so if we continue pursuing or passively allowing any of these things into our life, what it does is it puts us on that trajectory just like Esau. Trajectory of death and darkness. And it might get to the point that it's too late to turn back. Just like the termites. These things will eat away at you from the inside and you will be left to just be a shell of a person. This is a warning, church, against apostasy. It's a warning against rejecting Jesus and his ways for the things of this world. And so let me ask you this morning, what might your pot of stew be? That one thing that you are willing to give up Jesus to chase after. And how many of us right now might be on the verge of trading our glorious inheritance for it? What's brewing under the surface in your life right now? But here's something crucial that I don't want us to miss in this text. Something we have to remember. A key theme that the author has drawn out throughout this book. In verse 15, the author calls us to action by saying what? See to it. See to it. See to it has the idea of watching continually. It's a similar intensity to the word strive. That we're supposed to strive with this concerted effort. This is kind of a continually watching. Keeping our eyes open and peeled. Keeping a focus. See to it. But the interesting thing about this that we lose in our English translation from the original language is that this is the verb form of an overseer or an elder. It's the word here, to, to see to it. Oversee is basically the sense of this word. Now at Sojourn, a pastor is an elder and an elder is a pastor. We use those terms interchangeably, synonymously. So this in many ways is the call and function of a pastor. Pastors are called to look out for, oversee, take care of those in your care, to present everyone mature in Christ. But here's what we absolutely cannot miss. This is not a call and command for pastors. This is not a call and command for a a pastor or a group of pastors. It's a call and command for the church. 
He's applying this to the whole body of Christ. See to it is a communal call to care for and mutually disciple one another towards Christ-likeness. That all of us would love and care for one another enough. That we, like Paul says in Colossians 2, would strive and toil and struggle to present everyone in our church mature in Christ. It goes back to Hebrews 3 again. He calls us there to exhort and encourage everyone every day, as long as it's called today, so that no one would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These subtle, silent killers that can creep up and in below the surface in our hearts will not be able to be dealt with if we are not in genuine, transformational community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why church membership is so important. We talk about being covenant members of a church. It's not moving your name from one list to another list. Being a member of a local church is about covenanting with people in the church, committing to one another, saying, I am here for you and you are here for me and we aren't going anywhere. We're in this together. That we're committed not only to our own holiness, but to each other's holiness. That we believe that we best image God and his glory to the world together, not separate. So this text screams at us this morning. It screams at us that the role of the ministry and mission of the church, to call, the call to peace, the call to holiness, is not dependent on the pastors of this church. It's dependent on you as the people of this church. Now, I have the joy of being one of the pastors of this church. I get to do something God has given me the opportunity to do, something I love doing, the privilege of preaching God's word over you and to you. But it's you that can help apply it and bring God's word more fully into one another's lives all throughout the week. You are on the front lines of one another's lives. You are family to one another. And God has called you. He's positioned you. He's placed you in each other's lives so that no one in this church ends up like Esau. If discipleship, if following Jesus in our church wholly depends on the pastors of this church, then we have failed you. And we have failed as a church. See to it, body of Jesus. See to it, sojourn, that no one among you, no one who you've covenanted together with, fails and falls away from the living God. Now, practically speaking, this doesn't mean that we go on sin hunts in each other's lives. It means that we can all acknowledge that all of us already have creeping vines of sin beneath the surface. Sproutings of bitterness. Germinations of pride. Inklings of sexual immorality. Proclivities to profane. Incubations of discord and division. Seedlings of selfishness and selfish ambition. Gestations of greed. Constant temptations to unbelief and wandering away from the ways and will of our good and glorious God. All of us do. I don't need to dig for that. I don't need to go on a hunt to figure that out. I already know it's there because it's in my own life. But what I do know, what we know, is that our Savior is great. He's the overcomer and defeater of all of those things. 
He's the healthy vine in whom I abide and bear not rotten fruit, but flourishing fruit. And my father, he's the vine dresser, John 15 says. And he cares enough about me that he will prune and cut away at those things that are pulling me down and resulting in death in my life to remove them from my life so that I might more glorify him. He's cutting away those things that pervasively and persistently seek to kill me, seek to destroy me, that are in my own heart, my own life. Man, I know both of those things to be true. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you telling one another, are you reminding one another of the glorious grace of your Savior? Because though your sin is great, your Savior is greater. Are you reminding one another that he has not only rescued you, but he's restoring you and transforming you and never give up on you? Are we motivating one another? Are we encouraging one another to holiness because of grace? not in order to earn grace. Are we reminding one another? We even talked about in man's school this morning that we have the Holy Spirit. He's given us his spirit and his spirit is bringing about change within us from one degree of glory to another. Are you asking one another, what is evidence of God's grace in your life? Helping each other focus on that and not the areas that we're falling short in. But maybe for some of you, the real question you have to ask yourself this morning is, do you actually know him or just know about him? Do you actually know Jesus or are you just playing the part while being eaten away on the inside? Does anyone in this church community know what your pot of stew is? What's that thing, that one thing that can or is pulling you away from the living God? Man, I need this in my life. I struggle with pride. I struggle with finding my identity in what I do and idolizing ministry and being a pastor. I I can be far too easily satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of this world. I can be far too easily satisfied with having a comfortable life. I need you in my life. I I need you to help me see my sin and see my weakness. I need you to help me see my inconsistencies in what I say or do from what I know to be true, from what I believe, that Jesus is alive and he sits on the throne and he has called us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I need you to bear with me, to pick me up and point me back to him week in and week out. I need you to help me and you need me and everyone else around you to help you. This is where God is at work. In the local church. This covenanted community of brothers and sisters together. This messy, cumbersome group of followers of Jesus. Man, what an amazing and beautiful reality. So see to it, sojourn. See to it that we keep believing that. Keep living like Jesus truly is better together because he is. The race of the Christian life is long, and at times it is difficult, but we know the end. One day, we will see our Savior in all his glory, and we will be made fully like him. But until that day, we strive by his power, we strive by his grace to move forward in faith and obedience to God. Church, this is about finishing well, and we will not finish well if we don't finish together.
See to it, sojourn. Encourage one another to Christ and Christ-likeness. Not as a proud person who has it all figured out, but as one beggar who shows another beggar where to find some bread. May we be that kind of church, humble, long-suffering, desperate for grace, and deeply committed to one another. Every week at Sojourn, we take communion together. And one of the reasons we do that is because it renews and reminds us of the covenant and promise of grace that's been given to you in and through Jesus. We eat the bread because Jesus' body was broken for us. We drink the cup because Christ's blood was shed for us. It's a physical act to spiritually nourish our hearts, our minds, and our souls. But it's also something we do together. We come to the table and we watch one another come to the table. We are in this with one another. So my encouragement to you this morning as you come forward is look at the person behind you, in front of you, and the person that's speaking to you and be reminded that grace of God isn't just for you. It's for this room full of people who are on this journey with you. And may it compel you to love one another. May it compel you to strive for peace and holiness together until Jesus returns or calls you home. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you this morning not to come forward to take communion. This is a declaration that our only hope is in Christ and what he's done for us, dying on the cross for our sin, being raised to new life. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, let me implore you and plead with you, hang out in your seat this morning and ask him to do that today. Take Jesus today. Start a relationship with Christ today so that next week you could come and take communion, that you could be brought into this family and we could help you understand what it looks like to know and follow Christ. So those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables in the front or the back. What Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just pray simply this, that you would help us to take this warning seriously. Father, would you guard us? Would you protect us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you help us as your people to persevere in faith? To strive, not in order to gain grace, not as a condition for salvation, but as a result of it. We'd strive from grace. Help us to be a people that are committed to pursuing holiness and are committed to one another that we would covenant together, we'd be reminded of the covenant commitment we've made to one another, not only to pursue our own holiness, but to care about the holiness of those around us. Lord, help us to remind each other of the grace you've given us in Christ and that our Savior is the overcomer. Lord, help us to rest in that reality, encourage one another that reality, and then go from this place and preach that reality to the world around us. We praise your name this morning. Thank you for enduring, transforming grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.